Hello and welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. It's me, your host, Adam Rosted. On this episode of the podcast, we have a Story Slam to present to you. The theme was road trips. We were live at the Wilmar Center. This was February's event. And we had a lot of great stories. Also, we had released our best of CD that month or that night even. And if you're interested in getting a copy of one of those, you can come to our next event, which is Saturday, March 19th, again at the Wilmar Center. Doors open at 6 and stories start at 7. And uh, the theme that night is Rebel or Rebel. I'm leaving it up to you if you want the verb or the noun. Anyway, a lot of great stories. Let's take a listen. All right, so please put your hands together for Matthias Leonard. Hello, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the weather today. It was really nice out, and I know I did. But uh, I wanted to start by asking, so you know those songs that you collect throughout your life that were playing during some formative or really important moment that you were having at the time? Maybe your first kiss, uh, when you got some good news, when you got some bad news. Uh, one of mine is, <laughs> it goes like this. Bear with me. Okay, I'll stop. And that's a habanera from the opera Carmen. <laughs> Great opera. I love all of the soundtrack. But whenever I hear that song, my adrenaline spikes, and I become very aware of my surroundings. So just keep that in mind. It'll become important later. To give you some background on this event that I'm about to tell you, it's the summer of 2007, uh, between my junior and senior year of high school. My family is living in Merrill, Wisconsin, very boring. And my mother, <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> and my mother is a Spanish interpreter up there. And, um, uh, you know, I'm just an average high school student, kind of introverted and shy. But um, she always wanted to travel. Just a few words on my mother. Very kind person. Lived very earnestly. Just a simple heart. And always wanted to travel. But having six children, she never really had the time or the money to do that. This summer was different. She had scrounged up enough to go on a trip to Mexico. And she wanted company, so she invited me. And I didn't turn her down. That sounded like an amazing time. So it was two weeks that we went down to Mexico and were shuffled around between relatives of friends she had made up in Merrill and then friends of friends of relatives and then relatives of friends and then acquaintances. And somehow we made our way all through Mexico riding around in the backs of flatbed trucks and cramming into tiny vehicles, or at least I was cramming. Everyone else seemed quite comfortable. <laughs> and it was really an amazing experience, and I'm really happy that we had that time together. But what I'm about to tell you happens when we were on a bus from Mexico City to the city of Leon. It's a charter bus situation, pretty nice. There's speakers and TVs, and it's going to be a night trip, overnight trip. Everyone's kind of hunkering down, getting ready to just fall asleep. I'm happy for this downtime because as a kind of naturally introverted person, it took a lot of energy just being in this place where I don't speak the language very well and having to meet a lot of new people. Um, 
So everyone's pretty relaxed, and Carmen starts playing. It's going through the soundtrack. Thought it was an interesting choice, but I wasn't going to complain. Wouldn't know how to. <laughs> so as Carmen is playing, and I'm just recollecting all the things that have happened so far, I see this gentleman. He's across the aisle, a couple rows in front of us. And we're near the front of the bus right now. And our host that we were traveling with is right in front of this gentleman. And I notice that he keeps looking around uh, and popping his head up over the seat like some sort of meerkat. <laughs> and I didn't think too much of it, but he kept doing it. And now we're getting outside of the city bounds. So... I just took note of it, I guess. But he's appearing more and more agitated. So now I'm starting to get a little nervous. And this is when Habanera comes on. And almost as if that was his cue, he stands up fully, no words spoken. Two other people from the back of the bus come up and join him. They knock on the bus driver's compartment because he's sealed off behind this glass wall open the door, one of them goes in, presumably to have a friendly conversation with the bus driver. Maybe the air conditioning was too high. The lights come up, the music is turned off, and uh, the two gentlemen that were still in the passenger side of the bus start moving towards the back of the bus. And as they pass me and my mother, I notice that the meerkat gentleman has a gun in his hand. So... Without having to know the language, I knew this was going to be a situation. <laughs> uh, my mother didn't notice this. She appeared oblivious. So I have to nudge her like that. Did you, he was holding a gun. Did, do you understand what they're saying? And she's like, what? What gun? What are you talking about? Everything seems fine to me. <laughs> like I said, very earnest person. Could not even see or comprehend violence or deception. <laughs> it all went over her head. So I have to explain, I think we're about to get robbed. <laughs> She's like, what? Really? What? Well, okay, okay. We have to hide the cameras and the SD cards. She was adamant about hiding the SD cards. <laughs> that was all she cared about. Like, Okay, fine. I just don't want that to look suspicious. Again, like I'm six foot six white guy with spike bleach tip hair at the time. <laughs> and now I'm trying to surreptitiously shove SD cards in between our seats. As these people are going from the back of the bus towards us, uh, saying something, they weren't really shouting, but everyone was handing them their cash and throwing it in the aisle and they were collecting it. It was pretty apparent that this was a highway robbery. So... I'm thinking worst-case scenarios. I don't want anyone to get injured, not me or my mother, who's my lifeline, by the way. Like I, like I said, I can't be, speak Spanish, so if they single me out, I will not be able to do any sort of hostage negotiation. And neither will she. If they were going around offering free physicals, she was a medical Spanish interpreter. She would have been just the person, <laughs> but not for this. So they reach us. And presumably they're shouting, give us all your money or all your bills. And my mother, who I had told verbally, this is a robbery, somehow forgot that piece of information <laughs> and hands them our tickets. <laughs> so the friendly ticket collector 
looks at them in disgust, throws them on the ground, repeats himself, all of your bills. And so now she gives him a stack of bills. It was about 200 pesos worth of bills, which is uh, not very much, about $15, $20 U.S. dollars at the time. And he grabs it, and then he and his accomplice take the purses and everything of all the people in the rows in front of us, including our host, and they knock on the glass door, and all three of them get off the bus, which did stop before they got off. And uh, that, that was it. They left everyone in a little bit of a distraught state. The bus driver comes out, tries to calm people down a little bit, saying, well, it's the middle of the night. We'll make a stop at the next station, and everyone can file their formal complaints. <laughs> so to summarize, my mother... Out of all the stuff we had, all the cameras, all the SD cards, and then all the, like, at least $1,000 cash, had just given him $20. It was like a tip for the friendly ticket collector services. <laughs> and I didn't know whether to be furious at her for <laughs> being uncooperative, even without her knowledge, or just proud of her for conning these people. It was kind of a complicated... Uh, feeling that was coming over me. And so the bus driver starts moving again. And then the speakers on the bus went, And we all got to relive that moment. <laughs> Just each one of us individually as we listened to the sweet tones of Habanera. And the rest of the trip was amazing. That happened in the middle of it. And... One of the reasons, I just wanted to take this out at the end, one of the reasons I wanted to tell that story was in memory of my mother who uh, passed away last year. Um, again, I'm very glad we got to spend that time together. Uh, she was loved, and she is missed. Thank you. Thank you, Matthias. Please put your hands together for Brad Glassell. Good evening. The name of my story is Thedford, Nebraska. Anybody been to Thedford, Nebraska? Well, don't go there. <laughs> All right, so I grew up in Milwaukee. And uh, when I was 20 years old, which was just a couple years ago, in case you haven't noticed, I got fired from a job. And so my brilliant plan was to pack up my car the next day and drive to California and sell the car that I bought about three weeks ago for a profit. You can laugh at that. <laughs> it wasn't a good plan. Didn't work out good. So I did go to California. I did sell my car, not for a profit, by the way. And two years later, I decided it was a good idea to go back home. And so I decided to go on vacation. So my decision was to buy a month-long Greyhound Pass. Has anybody ever traveled on Greyhound? Would you do that for your next vacation? No. <laughs> One of the great parts about Greyhound is it, it lands in the armpit of every city, right? For those of you who have been there. So, 
So I traveled across the United States back to Wisconsin, got back to Milwaukee, went to my parents' house, and I was there about three hours visiting with my parents, and my friend calls up and says, hey, tomorrow a group of us are going to Colorado. You want to go along? Well, I visited with my parents for three hours, so why wouldn't I go? <laughs> so I repacked my backpack, reduced down in it, and, and decided, yeah, that's a good plan. Let's go to Colorado. So my uh, friend Dan and my friend Laura picked me up the next morning, and we head to Colorado. Well, now my friend Dan had rebuilt his car, a Chevy Nova, from top to bottom, stripped the engine down to nothing, took it back, put it brilliant, fabulous, didn't quite have the electrical system down pat. Which, of course, what I know about cars is you turn that little thing and you put the nozzle in there and then gas goes in. That's about all I know about it. So, so we take off. We head to Colorado. We got to Colorado Springs and actually the car completely shut down. Nothing happened. Electrical system. We had to get it towed into a uh, station. The guy fixed it. We got back on the road. So we're in Colorado. Have a great time. Have meet up with some friends and then head out from Colorado when we're driving back. And so we're driving back and Dan had been driving for quite a while and we're in Nebraska and he says, why don't you take a turn driving? So okay. So we pull up and we're coming into this town, Thedford, Nebraska. Now imagine this farm community in Nebraska, a small town very small town. We pull into there and drive down Main Street, pull in, and he say, there's a bar there, let's go in there and have a drink. Sounds good, then I'll take my turn. So we go in and imagine this. You go into this hall, and there's like these eight-foot tables with everybody sitting in it, bright lit. I am the only guy that doesn't have bib overhauls and a baseball cap on. This is the 70s, too, so got a little bit of hair more than here. And so everybody turns and looks at us, and we go, all right, let's have our one beer and get out of here. So we hop in the car. I get behind the driver's seat, heading out of town, sun setting, driving along. And we're driving along, and here comes the other direction, a cop car. Cop car turns around, puts the lights on, pulls us over. So, cop comes up to the car. Now, imagine Buford Justice and Barney Fife. Okay, only the old folks laughed at that. <laughs> yep, I'm one of those. So, here I am, my 21-year-old self. I roll down the window. I say, officer, can I help you? Says, well, uh, your headlight is out. So, my, bro my friend Dan jumps out of the other seat, goes up, kicks the fender. The light comes on. So we're all, are we all done here? And he goes, well, let me see your driver's license. And I said, well, funny thing. <laughs> I repacked my bag in Wisconsin, and I didn't bring my wallet. Now, you know, younger folks got to remember at that time, you didn't really have credit cards, you didn't have cell phones, so that wasn't that unusual. And he says, I said, oh, officer, I'm sorry, I don't have my driver's license. He says, okay, well, I'll go back and check it. So he goes back to the car, comes back a couple minutes later and said, son, I checked. You do not have a valid Wisconsin driver's license. Now, again, I'm being a wise ass here. And he said, well, you never asked me. I'm from California. He says, well, in Nebraska, the law is you have to have your driver's license with you. This will be a $35 fine, and I want you to pay me right now. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to pay this cop off. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, if you're not going to do it, you're going to go to jail. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I had never been to jail before, too, so it's not like I was talking upon experience here. Never been to jail. So uh, he says, okay, well, we're going to turn around. You're going to follow me back into town, and you're going to jail. 
So I roll up the window, and of course, Dan and uh, Laura look at me and go, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, well, I got my bus pass. I'll spend one night in jail, and I'll come back. Oh, yeah, brilliant plan. So... I turn around, we follow the cop, we turn down Main Street of Thetford, Nebraska, and at that time, all of a sudden, a little girl runs in the street, and the cop hits the girl. <laughs> a lot of gasps, one laugh. <laughs> the cop car pulls over to the side, here's the girl laying in the middle of the street, and here's our car there. All of a sudden, people start pouring out of the bar. Who do they see in the car? The three people who had just left the bar looking like freaks. We're standing there, and all these people start surrounding the car. The cop comes up. Buford comes up to the window, rolled on the window. He goes, son, I think you should get out of here. I said, no problem. I'm ready to go. He says, but you're going to have to pay me first. From the back seat, my friend Laura goes, will you take a check? <laughs> so she writes out a check, gives it to the cop. He turns to me and goes, son, next time you're in Thedford, Nebraska, bring your driver's license. <laughs> Fine. So we take off, drive home. What's the first thing Laura does when she gets home? Cancels the check. <laughs> okay. So I'm probably wanted in Thedford, Nebraska. <laughs> All right, well, fast forward about eight years later, and I decide to move from California back to Wisconsin because you can only live on the beach in California for so long, right? I mean, it starts to really wear on you. you got to get back to this. So I move, decide to move back to Wisconsin. Well, my dad is so nice, he flies out to Wisconsin and drives back for me, with me. So I load up a truck, a trailer, I'm driving back. Driving from California, we get to the border of Nebraska, and I turn to him and I say, why don't you drive? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Brad. I didn't mean to laugh at that little girl. <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh, but I did. I wasn't laughing that a little, just to clarify, I wasn't laughing that she got hit, but just, it added so much to the story. <laughs> I thought it was going one way, and just wham, it stopped, is what it did. Uh, you know, the greatest thing is that the cop was like, you boys are in trouble. I'm going to get back in my car, but I'm going to make sure you, you're going to follow me. Hell no, I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to keep going this way. Give a rowdy round of applause for Marty Meatman Sosnowski. <laughs> Fuck you, Madison. That's the way I started out. It can't. <laughs> it can't get any worse than that. I'm the meat man. I'm from Appleton. Did anybody bring any meat? You do? Sweet. I think I got some, too. Let's see what we got. Let's see what we can dig out here. I got a sandwich. I got a ham sandwich. What else do I got? Oh, I think I got some hot dogs. Here we go. We got some hot dogs. I'm the meat man, and I used to run a ragtag group called the Sin City Meat Throwers. We used to go throw meat at rock and roll bands, and I haven't thrown meat in a long time. 
So there you go, folks. Here's a little meat throwing. Anybody needs a hot dog? There you go. Awesome. There you go. That's what meat throwing. Now, I got to hurry this up. There's a reason for this. My story tonight is about one of my fellow meat throwing friends. Like I said, we used to run a ragtag group of rock and roll fans. We used to go throw meat at rock and roll bands. That's a whole long story in itself. So one of my favorite guys that got involved with this... Now, I, I don't change... Once again, I don't change names to protect the innocent. My friend, his name was Rick Schweitzer. He became a good friend of mine through a rock and roll band that I used to take pictures of. Used to be a rock and roll photographer. Was working with this band called The Toll out of Columbus, Ohio. They were a really hot band, got signed to Geffen Records, so I was working really hard on photos for this band. I was in, getting photos on their next album, everything was good. So one night I'm at one of their shows taking pictures. After the show, me and Rick Schweitzer, my friend, we meet up with one of the guys from the band. We got a couple girls, so we're doing pretty good, you know. I mean, we got girls and we're going to go hang with the band and all this. So we're talking to the guy in the band, and he informs me that the, their next show next weekend, they're going to shoot the album cover for their new album. And I was like, are you kidding me? I just put in two years' worth of work with this band, and now they're going to fly in some photographer, and they're all hooting and hollering about this great photographer that they're flying in from Chicago to shoot the album cover. Now, my night just went, boom, that's it, I'm done. So anyways, the next weekend, my friend Rick calls me up and says, well, we're going to the show, aren't we? And I said, I'm not going. I said, I, you know, I don't want to really have anything to do with this. I'm, you know, they, wouldn't, they didn't want me to bring my camera because this guy was pretty anal about all that stuff. So I was like, no, I don't think I want to go. And he goes, well, he said, I got 25 Percodan. And I go, well, maybe we could have a little fun. So I said, all right, you come and pick me up. So this is a story about Rick getting his nickname. If you knew me for very long, you get a nickname. Rick's nickname became Two Boot Louie. That was the nickname I gave him. And th this road trip is how he got his name. So he shows up to pick me up. I'm not in a very good mood to begin with. We got a two-hour trip from Cincinnati to Columbus to this show. He shows up. He's got a 12-pack, a bag of mushrooms, 25 Percodan, and a bag of weed. And I'm not lying. This is a true story. And, it's, and he's already drinking, and he's driving. So I'm going, this trip's going to be all right. No matter what happens, we're going to have some fun. So off we go. And he's already doing mushrooms and drinking. So down the road we go. We're going down the road. It's a warm day. We're from, traveling from, Colum from Cincinnati to Columbus, about a two-hour trip. We're smoking weed. And all in my mood's starting to change. I'm getting in a much better. A couple of Percodan, and I'm good to go. So we're going down the road, and it's kind of hot. Two Booty takes his, his boots off. He came from work. He picked me up. And we're running kind of late, so we're kind of in a hurry. So we get up there. We get up there, and we never got out of the truck from the time we left Cincinnati till we get to Columbus. And we're trying to find a place to park. We're driving around. Two Boots, pretty tank. He, if he was awake, he was drinking. So we, we get... We get to Columbus, and we can't find a place to park. We're driving around. We finally find a place to park, which took us forever. Get out of the truck. He can't find one of his boots. I'm serious. And, and I, this, is, this is the honest to God truth. We never left that truck. We never left that truck. <laughs> and 
so we're sitting there in the road and, and we're digging through the truck and we can't find his boot. He's got one boot and he wears these dang work boots with a big heel. And so, I mean, and we're, we're, and I, we're freaking out because we're tripping. We're doing drugs. We're like, we can't find his boot. It's like, what is going on? We can't believe this. So I'm meeting my brother and several people that I knew at a restaurant before the show. And then we're all going to go to the show. So I go, Tuboot, we got to get going. Well, I wasn't calling him Tuboot then. It was still Rick. Rick, we got to get going. So we go to meet my brother. And here's Rick. He's walking down. One boot on, no boot. One boot, and he's pretty hammered, and he's going. And we get to the restaurant, and they won't let us in because he only has one boot. And we're like, are you kidding me? So down the street, we go to the quick trip. Get it, we get a pair of flip-flops. So now he's got a flip-flop on one, and he won't take his boot off. So he's got a flip-flop and a boot. And so we get to the restaurant. This is the great part. We get to the restaurant. We get to my brother. My brother's like, what's going on? And we, said, we're telling him, man, we lost a boot, and we don't know what happened to it. And we never got out of the car. One of the guys that's with my brother goes, I saw that boot. And we're going, What? And he goes, I saw that boot. It's up there on Oak Street underneath the tire of a car. And we're going like, come on. So by this time, we got about 15 people. I'm not lying. About 15 people that we've been telling. And they're all following us down to to go find the boot. We get down the street and there's the boot. And it's underneath the tire of a car. And we can't get it out. I mean, we're pulling. We can't get it. We're like, oh, shit. So so to make a long story short, we're going, we got to go. The show is going to start. We got to go. So, fuck it, we left the boot there. We'll come back and get it later. Off to the show we go, had a great time, threw a bunch of meat at the band, all that good crap. We go back after, and the car's gone, and there's the boot. Two boot walks up, puts his boot on, and went to party with the band. And so that's how Two Boot got his nickname. But that's, that's not the end of the story. So then, we party with the band that night, Stay at their place that night. The next day, we head back to Cincinnati. Now, it's a couple weeks later. Now, I, I was already going to have some photos on their album, so I was happy about that, but I wasn't going to get the cover, and I was disappointed about that. So, here we go. It's like two weeks later, I'm outside, and I'm living in Kentucky. We live on this third floor. My brother's yelling out the window at me, Marty, it's Brad from the Toll. He has to talk to you. And I'm like, what? I go, tell him I'll call him back. No, he wants to talk to you right now. So run upstairs, get on the phone. And here, he calls me and he goes, hey, he goes, you know the pictures that you sent him, they want, he was telling me the ones they wanted me to print. And I'm going, cool. And he goes, congratulations on the cover. And I go, what? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, didn't you hear? He said, the art department looked at the guy's photos that they were all hooting and hollering about. And he said, that guy looked at your photos and went, well, what the hell are we getting some? He said, so they picked one of yours for the cover. So I ended up getting the cover. And I'm going, now who's hooting and hollering now, man? I was hooting and hollering all the way to the bank because that was one hell of a payday. And that's my road trip and my story about two boot Louis. Thank you, Meat Man. Um, well, there's going to be a new rule next month. <laughs> Deli meats are no longer allowed at Story Slam. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Our next storyteller, let's just get right to it, is a guy named Will Sundance. So clap your hands together for him.
Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good. Oh, yeah. Questions. Um, my name's Will Sundance, and I just moved to Madison two weeks ago. And Thank you. Yeah. All the way from Southern California. Everybody I told when I was like, I'm moving to Wisconsin, they're like, what the fuck is your problem? Don't you know it's winter? And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, America. And I'm going to... I need to get back to my roots. I hated Southern California. Southern California, it's one of those great places. I don't know. Is anybody here from Southern California? Where from? Pasadena? Oh, so you're more in the hilly area. I was in Orange County, and I didn't see any desperate housewives, so I thought, fuck that. I'm moving to Madison. I'm going to dedicate my life to cheese and beer. Right? Right? So in the process of all this, I managed to find a job. Last month, I was here for the other story slam, the humiliation. I told a story about how I broke up with my sister at Olive Garden. Yeah, listen to the old podcast. Listen to the old podcast. But um, two weeks ago was the day before I was leaving, and I latched on to my sister's baby shower as a goodbye party, which she loved because her... You know, when you're pregnant, you want the baby shower all about you. So everybody was there, and on my way, I called my friend's mom because she was having issues with her kids, and she's like an aunt to me, and she's manic depressive. And I called her, and I was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm moving to Wisconsin tomorrow, so I'm just, bye. And she, I guess, didn't take her meds and said, do you want some company? And I was like, yeah, I don't want to drive across the country alone, Yeah. Yeah, 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 let's, let's do this. So the next morning I picked her up, and, you know, she'd been taking her medication while we were on the road. And driving through Arizona was great because I learned that if you put on Harry, Potter, uh, Harry Potter's audiobooks, it makes them pass out. Yeah, right? You've heard them? Jim Dale's amazing. Um, I was so dedicated on telling, like, such a... I don't know where to go with this story, but the first day was beautiful, driving across the desert until I got to snow which um, was in Utah, I pulled out my selfie stick and everybody in the Starbucks behind me stared at me take pictures of myself with my selfie stick. I felt like Brad Pitt. It was pretty great. But the next day, driving to Colorado was pretty awesome, too, because I was there the day that um, the Bronco, yeah, the Broncos just won the Super Bowl. So finding a hotel that night, getting in there on that Monday, was super awesome because, you know, not everybody was coming into Seattle. It only, only everybody who wanted to be there for the parade was trying to get there. So Priceline was not my friend that day. So um, the next day, I, I was like, let's go do some sightseeing downtown. But then since I was five miles away and it said two and a half miles to get there, we decided to not do that. And where was the guy that told the story about Nebraska? Nebraska's a shithole. <laughs> Nebraska is a shithole. I left Denver and I was like, this was the most, this was a great drive so far. And then I met Nebraska. Has anybody driven through Nebraska? Oh, so you guys know it sucks. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen American Horror Story, the third season Coven? Yeah. That was my hell. And that will be my hell, driving through Nebraska. I don't even know how I did it. I mean, as soon as I got to Iowa, we stayed in a place, thank God, Council Bluffs at the state line. It's a casino. And I felt bad because the guy that was at the checkout counter was, I don't know what, what his problem was, but I felt really bad because I really laid into him. I'm like, you know what? I, this, uh, I'm glad to be out of Nebraska. I started cussing and saying derogatory terms about Aunt Becky from Full House. 
because that's where she's from, and I just got really mad at, like, Full House on that. And so now when I watch the reboot version, I know I'm going to be fucking pissed when I see Becky, Aunt Becky. Um, but, yeah, all the meantime, I have a manic-depressive woman with me who was so awesome to be with because as soon as anything would go awry, like, when you lose your cell service, tell me you guys don't lose your crap. If you don't have cell service and you need cell service, you want to have your cell service. Well, she's trying to talk to me like it's going to make me feel better, and she pulls out a map and says, we're here. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to get to it, and I'm going from airplane mode, and she's like, we're right here now. And I'm just like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Shut the hell up. And then, can we stop for the bathroom? It's like... I brought, there's puppy pads in the back. I brought puppy pads. She was an older woman. I figured what was, but but she, but we stopped. She used the bathroom. She used the bathroom. We didn't have to use the puppy pads, but, um, I drove through my first snowstorm through Iowa, which was shitty because I'm from California. I've never had to deal with traffic or weather or anything like that. Like it's a constant eternal spring fall. So driving through snow was fun. And then on the fourth day, I couldn't handle Manic Depressive Molly. So I just put on the Harry Potter books and listened to the Deathly Hollows for the rest of the trip and got here at 3.30 and am now a Madisonite, Wisconsinite in Madison. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. And that was my road trip story. I guess it wasn't that much about the road. Thanks, Will. Uh, I was just going to say, you know you might... Wisconsin loves football, right? And you know that you might stick out a little bit in a state when you say, Those, the horses won the, the super game, the, the game, the, the Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> it's a great story, though. Uh, our next storyteller is a guy who comes faithfully every month, and he's great. His name is Tom. He's got a great story that I love. Please put your hands together for Tom Schmidt. I try to walk slow so I get more applause. (laughs) Um, So, my son uh, lives out in Missoula, Montana, and the uh, he had opened up a uh, a paddle shop out there in early 2000, and so uh, I went out and gave him a hand putting it together and cleaning up this uh, old diesel truck repair shop in order for him to have a a nice paddle shop. And we wired it and we built walls and cleaned it and scrubbed it and so on and so forth. Well, I wanted his grandfather to see it. And in about 2006, in that time frame, uh, Dad was starting to lose his mind, uh, meaning Alzheimer's was starting to to kick in, or dementia. And uh, so I contacted Ben to find out about us coming out. And uh, he said, well, if you're going to come out, why don't you bring a load of canoes along with you and make the trip worthwhile? 
so uh, Winona Canoes is located, uh, uh, Winona Canoes, yes, are, are located in uh, Minnesota, in uh, Winona. And uh, so uh, I got my mom's okay to do this, and I think she was happy because it meant a vacation for her. And uh, we loaded Dad up. I had a trailer behind my van. I had the racks on top of the van. Um, I had the uh, uh, pretzels in the truck or the van. I had a cooler full of frozen bratwurst. I had cheese, and I had beer, and I had drinks for my dad and, and myself. Uh, it's a 1,400-mile trip. Uh, my van gets 15 miles to the gallon. <laughs> and uh, dad likes to piss about every two rest stops. <laughs> so we, we worked it out, a lot of stops. And... Uh, Whenever we would stop for gas, I'd pull out my credit card and I'd, you know, I'd pay at the pump. And Dad, in the meantime, would be inside the uh, uh, convenience store or the gas station. And uh, he would uh, always marvel that we never had to pay for that gas. <laughs> and he would, you know, I'd walk in and he'd say, well, I'll pay for it. I said, it's already paid for. And then he'd look at the woman and she said, yeah, it's already paid for. <laughs> So anyway, after a while, I started having a little fun with this because he took it so good. You know, he, it was not like he got irritated by this. I don't know how this is happening. And so, you know, he'd come back, and, and especially if there was an attractive woman behind the counter, he'd, he'd get in the truck and say, I just don't understand why we didn't have to pay. And I'd say, Dad, she thought you were so good looking that, the, you know, the gas was free. Well, then he wanted to go in inside and chat with this woman for a little while. <laughs> well, anyway, we would hit the road, and uh, he'd take his naps, and when he'd wake up, you know, he would kind of be a little concerned about where he was. He was having a little bit of trouble figuring out how this whole trip was working out in his mind. I brought along uh, tapes, music tapes, and I brought along... Uh, by, because that's all my van had was a tape player. And then I brought along a boombox with CDs. My dad likes music. And I brought along music that, that he liked. So, you know, we had Roy Orbison and the Everly Brothers and, and uh, uh, Judy Collins and, uh, anyway, a bunch of other. I can't remember the names, you know. Cat Stevens. <laughs> And Dad liked all these things. Cheryl Weaver, Wheeler, by the way, was his absolute favorite. And if I could have put that tape on a continuous roll, we would never have had to change it even once. He couldn't figure out how this damn tape machine worked. Or, the, or for that matter, the CD machine. He couldn't figure it out. I'd say, Dad, all you got to do is just push this. And sure enough, he knew how to do it. And about a half hour later, he wouldn't know how to do it. So it was this kind of continual reminding me of what was going on, you know, in, in his head. Um, he never stopped on the entire trip the fascination of this whole process. He just could not get over it. He'd look out the window and he'd oh, God, is this gorgeous. I just love this. This was in April 
you know, going through western Minnesota, talk about dead. <laughs> and then, of course, we moved immediately into South Dakota. Uh, until you get to the western part of South Dakota, it's pretty dead in South Dakota as well. But he hit the Badlands, and of course, oh, I can't believe this. And of course, it is spectacular. Then we did the Spearfish Highway, which is fantastic. We did Crazy Horse, the big monument. If you haven't seen it, you ought to go to see it. The head of Crazy Horse is bigger than all of the heads combined of Mount Rushmore. Um, so, Montana, uh, or Wyoming, <laughs> and uh, we saw antelope. By the way, antelope is the, is the second fastest land animal on the face of the earth, and that's ours. Our, it's our antelope, or Wyoming's antelope. <laughs> so, anyway, Montana shows up. We, we're driving through Montana. Dad's still, you know, wondering what the hell is going on. At the same time, he's happy. We're singing songs. We're telling oh, excuse me. We're telling stories. Um, and a lot of these stories I knew, you know, a bit. But he, he elaborated on one. And so my dad was a, a bit of a, well, he was a fuck-off when he was a young man. <laughs> and my grandfather had a lot of trouble with him, a lot of trouble. And so finally, rather than dad being, you know, eventually being in jail someplace, he indentured my father to a farmer in northern Wisconsin. And dad, and I knew that this had happened, but what I didn't know was how much my father enjoyed this experience, that the, the farmer was was. I mean, he worked my dad's ass off. That he did say. But the, the woman, or this guy's wife, and the farmer treated him properly. They fed him good. My grandfather would come up on weekends. He would bring his, my father's girlfriend along with him. And they'd spend the day, and then my grandfather would drive home again. Uh, my dad came out of it, you know, good. It worked out real well. My grandfather, with all his brutality, being part of the German heritage, <laughs> which is the last name Schmidt would indicate, um, was, a, was a kind man as, as well. But I'm getting off a little bit here. Once we got to Montana, he saw the shop that Ben had. And my grandfather had his own business, my father had his own business, I had my own business, and now his grandson had his own business. It meant a lot to him. And he, you know, he, he had enough going on up here that, that he understood all of this process that, that had taken place. And he, and he was proud of, of, of his grandson. We got the shop, all the boats unloaded. We had 14 boats on the back of the on the trailer. We had a couple more boats on top of the van. We unloaded all that stuff. We unloaded the brats. We got the grills set up. Ben had a big open house. My dad and I grilled. Uh, we talked to people. My dad flirted with everybody he could, well, every woman he could find. <laughs> and, uh, and then we served food. And uh, next morning he woke up, didn't know where the hell he was. He didn't know 
why he was here. He didn't know where he was. He didn't understand anything. All he wanted to do was go home. So we said, loaded everything up, said goodbye to Ben. Uh, by this time, Dad knows what's going on, and uh, we took the drive home. The drive home is not all that dissimilar from the drive there. <laughs> we listened to music, we ate pretzels, we pissed every two, you know, few hours, whatever the hell it was. And uh, um, by the time we got back, it was a great trip. It's something that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Um, I would say maybe three, four months after that, Dad didn't even know he had gone on a trip. <laughs> but, but... He, I, I know he, it, it felt good to him for this, all, for this whole process to take place. And maybe a year later, he didn't know who that woman was that was living with him, but he liked her. <laughs> and he didn't know that I was his son, although when I'd say to he'd say, you want to know who I was, and I'd say, well, I'm your son. And his response, would, Bill, Bill, his response was, you are? <laughs> And then not shortly after that, then uh, when, I was in, when he would introduce me, he'd introduce me as his best friend. And so um, with that awe, <laughs> and uh, Dad's gone now, and um, my story's done. Thanks, Tom. My dad's starting to lose it, too. He's also sitting right there. Uh, is uh, Maria De La O here? Okay, I didn't see you. You're next. So everybody clap for Maria De La O. Thank you for clapping so long, because it took me fucking forever to get up here. Um, so my story is tentatively titled, and my sister and my mother are in the audience, by the way. They will know what this is right away. It's tentatively titled Ballywagget. Now, this is, it, it does get to be a road trip. Um, I was watching planes, trains, and automobiles while I got ready. So this story involves planes and automobiles, no trains. But it does start out, you know, with the plane. We're going to Ireland. I tried to dress in theme with the Irish flag colors. I try to dress in theme most of the time. But uh, it starts on the plane to Ireland. We're taking the air. We eventually get to the Aer Lingus. And the first thing that I remember about this trip is I was in fifth grade at the time, or I had just finished fifth grade. So I'm a little bit past the coloring book stage of life, but I still was really into art at that time. And, um, I had, <laughs> because I didn't know what else to do, I decorated on the seven-hour flight one of the barf bags that was, uh, you know, so complimentary, you know, given to us on the flight. And I, oh, Maria's little, you know, bag. I, I wrote some things on it in fancy lettering. And then, of course, I remember seeing my sister at one point or another having to use it. Um, so that art, that that bag was no more. At least it got put to use. And I, you also notice, you know, you're on a flight for seven hours. You're going to notice little details. You get bored. I looked at the back of the writing on the plane seats, and I don't know if Aer Lingus still has seats that look like this, but there, there was just nonsensical cursive writing on the backs of all the seats, like, printed, and I don't know what the goal was. It, it wasn't really, it wasn't like a whole story. It wasn't going anywhere, but my sister and I particularly noticed one gem written in cursive on the back of the seat. 
printed, you know, into the cloth that said dot, 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 cursive writing, barring the fact that he was a bird, dot, dot, dot. We don't know why he was a bird. We don't know what was being barred, but that's what we remembered. So we finally get to Ireland, and now this is, you know, when it's going to start to become a road trip because we end up, we will end up, you know, renting a car, and of course uh, it has to be a stick shift. Um, My mother proudly claimed that she had driven stick shifts, and this was her seventh trip to Ireland. My parents even went there on their honeymoon, but uh, she, I don't believe she had driven a stick shift uh, since the last time she'd been to Ireland, which, if I recall correctly, is sometime quite a while before I was born, um, and I was 11 at this time. So... Uh, we get to, you know, the first hotel uh, that we're staying in, I believe it was in Limerick, and um, I I'd, I'd kind of felt a little bit sick on the plane, and I thought, oh, you know, it's jet lag, I can't sleep on planes, trains, or automobiles, so I'm already jet lagged, I get there first day, out of sorts, and I, I start to then itch, I'm feeling something... And after some consultation with my parents and you were talking to everybody, I'm like, what is, what's wrong with me? Like, what's going on? Um, we deduced that it was something, I think it was called monkeypox. There had been something going around my Catholic school. And I, I read in a book once a girl describing her school as one giant Petri dish of bacteria. I believe that was in the Princess Diaries, which I had read at that time. And I think that that's applicable to all schools. Um, so, you know, I picked something up. I, this trip took place like a couple days after uh, the last day of school. So I picked some kind of rash up at school that people were calling monkeypox because it wasn't chickenpox. Um, so that's, you know, always just what you want on your first day abroad. It's definitely a strange, scary rash. Um, great way to start things off. But, uh, you know, that first night we noticed, and it I don't believe it was a weekend night, um, and this seemed to be almost every night that we were in Ireland, not letting the stereotype down, um, from about, I want to say, 11.30, roughly midnight perhaps, to anywhere from 4 to 6 in the morning, we would continuously hear shrieking, screaming like banshees, very, you know, very accurately like banshees in Ireland, uh, and and the breaking and smashing of of bottles, uh, most likely of alcohol that had been consumed. And we, uh, this would go on many, many nights that we stayed in, you know, the bigger cities, Limerick, Limerick, Dublin, etc. So um, that was the first thing. And you know, on these trips, you're with your family. We have, you know, three kids in our family, my two parents. But on these trips, you know, you're in close quarters. Things get cramped, especially when you have, you know, one small rental car. Um, so I always ended up having to sit in the middle when we would travel from place to place because I was the smallest. Um, you know, have to sit with your lace leg like this because you got the big thing. I don't know even what it's called, but the thing in the middle of the two front seats that extends out in the back. So that's really comfortable first off. Um, and I will just tell you now that my ass was permanently asleep the whole trip. I mean, that's just a given, like, straight off. Also, uh, I did not, for some reason, I was way behind the times, I did not currently own a CD player on this trip, and my sister did. Um, That was the good news. The bad news was that she'd only remembered to bring one record, and it was, you know, we all remember the mixed CDs, the CDRs or whatever that you burn. She had one of those. The only song that I really remember off of it with any certainty is uh, R. Kelly's smash hit, the remix to Ignition. Um, That was listened to, you guys know, (laughs) Um, hot and fresh out the kitchen. Uh, That was played many times, um, too many times, actually, because there was nothing else to listen to. And always keep in mind, too, that in Europe, you drive on the other side of the road. So great fun there. And uh, my parents, you know, got sick of driving. My sister was in high school at the time. So she definitely had to take the wheel many a time. I felt useless as hell because I couldn't drive. Um, But there was that. And uh, let's see, there was also, you know, 
these trips, you accumulate things, and there's never enough space, usually, for what you want. And I had acquired a teddy bear, and of course, again, in fifth grade, you it is, I believe, socially acceptable to own teddy bears. It's not socially acceptable to let anyone else outside of your family know that you own them. When you have sleepovers, you hide that shit. You do not let them see it. But I had gotten this teddy bear who was outfitted in a fabulous Irish dance dress, and I was an Irish dance girl. I danced with Trinity Academy for six years. I did it competitively. Um, you know, and she, so she's wearing the little dress, and the entire time, I, I never could find space for it in my suitcase, and my brother always uh, threatened to, I believe he said he would make the bear do an Irish jig right out the window. So that threat was looming the whole time, and I didn't really believe him to be bluffing. Um, but the, I wanted to keep, I was going to keep that bear, by God, because, you know, the American Girl Dolls didn't have an Irish dance dress. I needed something with an Irish dance dress. Um, and, you know, when I did that competitively, because that's just what you want to do in fifth grade, is wear a wig full of ringlets and then go on Saturday mornings around the country to compete with other little girls that have faux ringlets clipped into their scalp. So it was a very important part of my life. Um, so I, I made sure to keep that with me. I was not going to let that thing go. Um, but there are, you know, all these other things that happened along the way. Uh, at one point, the car broke down, the stick shift car. We were staying in I believe it was Killarney at this point. And that's another great thing about Ireland is that a lot of the names sound funny to our ears because sometimes they have the word kill with somebody's name after it. And my brother also didn't let us forget this because he was obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he never, you know, forgot to remind us that this was Killarney and he would say it in his Arnold voice, which I will not repeat. Um, and, and it always makes, and there's, there was also uh, Kill Kenny too, which always makes me think of South Park. Like, oh my God, you've killed Kenny, you bastard. Always puts me in out of South Park, but I believe it was Killarney that we were staying in when the car broke down, so this involved the owner of Marion House, the bed and breakfast, the very quaint, lovely bed and breakfast that we stayed at, uh, having to take the phone from my mother and yell at the car company in Irish, he was sticking up for us, this is a good man, um, you know, letting him know that if uh, he had any problems, that, you know, he'd be happy to see him in court, so it's nice to know you got people in your corner, even overseas, but, uh, you know, and then... Eventually, we actually, it was a zigzag trip, I call it, because we went from Ireland, then spent some time there, then flew on the Ryanair flight over to Paris, um, and then we were to come back to Ireland. So we go to Paris, and uh, we're there for, we're supposed to be in Paris anyway. We landed Beauvais. We were supposed to spend one night there, then go to Paris. Unfortunately, my sister uh, lost her passport in the taxi cab, so we stayed in Beauvais an extra day. Um, we didn't get to do the shopping on the Champs-Élysées, which I had been looking forward to, but we were treated to the pleasure of staying in a small cramped hotel room in 95 degree heat with no air conditioning and nothing much really to do. Um, I remember ordering food the next morning and to my sister's great surprise when she ordered an Alfredo for breakfast, uh, they had a raw egg on the top of it. I don't know what kind of if that's normal there, or we never really figured that out. But when we finally did get to Paris uh, after being delayed in Beauvais, we did get to a nice hotel, and they treated us like kings and queens. Uh, we get in there. You know, we want to relax the first night. We flip on the TV. Um, there wasn't a whole lot to choose from. We eventually settled on the, I believe it, it was an 80s film, Forever Young, starring Mel Gibson, and I think Elijah Wood is in it. We were obsessed with him because we were all, my whole family is Lord of the Rings geeks and proud. Um, and it was dubbed in Latvian, which we did not understand, but, you know, you pick your battles. So um, the next morning was nice, too, because, uh, you know, flip on... I 
I'm, I'm up at Saturday morning and I'm used to Saturday morning cartoons. Well, I did find my then favorite show, uh, Lizzie McGuire. Unfortunately, you know, it was, uh, I believe it was dubbed and the voice actor for Matt, Lizzie's pesky little brother, who's supposed to be about 10 years old, was dubbed by what I can only describe as a, a very a male opera singer, so that was quite interesting to listen to. Um, and when we eventually left Paris, because we only spent a couple days there, uh, we had to get up at you know four in the morning. It had, and it had been my birthday the day before too, so I got to you know be in Paris on my 11th birthday, but uh, we went to a Chinese restaurant in Paris. Um, it was so fancy that they gave us hot towels, my first hot towel experience. Didn't really know what it was for, so I took it, scorched my hand, dropped it on the plate in front of me. It sizzled like a steak. Everybody in the shop turned around and looked at me. I wanted to die, of course. Uh, but, you know, it's our last morning in Paris. Uh, it's four in the morning. I can't think straight. My brother informs me that I'm putting the deodorant on my shirt, uh, you know, and we all laugh because at four in the morning, everything's funny. We make it back to Ireland. Um, and I sh also should tell you about Ireland, at least when I went there. Ireland is like AA in the fact that everyone smokes. I mean everybody. I saw store owners smoking all over their products. They don't care. Um, so that was real fun. And they also tended to give a lot of french fries uh and every time that we tried to order you know a, could we have a baked potato and said oh sure and then they would always come out and apologize to us you know sorry no baked potato but uh we'll give you more fries so there was uh we we basically never wanted to see a french fry again ever after that and on our very last night in ireland uh my brother woke me up to tell me that he thought he was witnessing a murder. And I said, well, like, what? Do you, do you hear something? Yeah, yeah, do you hear that? We both listened. And we're like, yeah, we hear that. My sister was still asleep. Finally, when she gets up, we realize that the murder has apparently stopped because our sister informs us that nobody was being murdered. It was her nose whistling, apparently. We, none of us knew this. So that's always really comforting to hear. Um, but we, yeah, we never wanted to see French fries again after that trip. And... My dad liked to threaten us, uh, and we did not take this lightly after the trip. If any of us acted up, he said, I'm sending you a one-way ticket to Beauvais, and you are not getting out of there. You are going to stay up there, by God. Um, and, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's about it. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. What was the what was the airline you were flying on? I can't believe that that's a real airline. <laughs> I feel like that's the kind of airline you have to be very careful saying. Aer Lingus. <laughs> I couldn't get over that part of this story, to be honest with you. Uh, so, as luck would have it, our next storyteller is named Dave Babbler, and he's standing right next to me. Clap your hands! Thank you, Adam. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm going to be pretty straightforward. I don't necessarily have a great story with, like, you know, some, like, incredible plot. Like, there's, like, this incredible story arc, and you guys are going to get really captivated. But I just think this event's too great to pass up. I just, I think it is. Let's give a round of applause for Adam and for the, everyone working in back. It's a great event. And I just want to support it by telling my very poor story, which I hope you guys enjoy. Um... So my story isn't, uh, I'm going to begin by telling you where we drove, 
then I'm going to tell where about that experience there, and then I'm going to tell you I drove home. So the experience is like during the road trip. I feel like road trip stories kind of have like this implication like, oh, well, we were driving, and there's something happening along the way, like this crazy adventure. Well, my adventure kind of happened. It wasn't even really adventure. Again, poor story. It's not really that great. But the adventure happened at the location, not during the trip, which is a little disappointing. Again, I feel like it should just be during the trip. Maybe that's my opinion, right? But it happens at the location. So every few years, me and a few of my friends go um, up to the Packers training camp. And we like to watch, oh, another Packer fan. That's great. And then we like to watch uh, the practice, you know, get autographs, scream at our favorite sports athletes, Aaron Rodgers, you know, that whole thing. We we do that. We're those people. And um, I remember this was one year. It was me and a few of my friends. We were about probably like 20, 22 years old. And we were young. Um, And on the way up, um, always a topic of conversation on road trips. What should we listen to? What's, what, what, what CD is going in the tray? What, what, what are we going to be spinning, guys? Come on, come on. Let's get some ideas going. And for some reason with us, it always ended up being like they would propose something super ironic. Like, maybe we should listen to Britney Spears. <laughs> and then we listened to her for like three hours. <laughs> like, it, well, it's not a three-hour trip. Well, it's about that. But basically, you get my point. Like, it's, we, do the, we have this like tendency to say like something ironically. Like, yeah, what if we did that? And then we do it with all of our heart. And we do it sincerely with the best of our ability, belting out Britney Spears or whatever the artist is. Um, and that's kind of a preface for what happens later. So we get to the Packers training camp. We enjoy ourselves, you know, like scream at our our favorite fans and uh, our favorite athletes as fans. Um, And then after we're done, we decide we want to get something to eat. So we're like, all right, guys, what do you guys want to get to eat? Let's let's get some food. And we toss some ideas out there. You guys want to the Brett Fire Steakhouse? And dude, I'm not making money. I'm not going to spend that much money. He's like, what do you want to get? So we're like, something cheap? I don't know. And then as we're driving, we're like... (laughs) What if we go to Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> it was that funny. <laughs> and it, like, what if we go to Chuck? <laughs> yeah, and then we go in there and we like get tokens. And <laughs> twenty minutes later, obviously, we find ourselves approaching the big neon size with the the rat with cheese in his face, and we're, we're walking it up the whole time. We're laughing. We get in there, <laughs> get our hands stamped, walk in, or like. <laughs> Let's get some pizza and go watch those animatronics. <laughs> and then, you know, we all, oh, you guys remember the whole like MTV, like, like the whole MTV gimmick? Oh, and there's oh, and like, like, like all these like grumblings of like our memories and how funny it is and how funny we are because we're the funniest people because we went to freaking Chuck E. Cheese. In retrospect, it just wasn't that funny. And I'm going to get, and like this whole time, like this whole experience, we're laughing about it. We're getting tokens. We're looking at the prizes and laughing at it. Like, oh, meanwhile, all these kids are having a good time. And, and then we, and we find our way back to the car. We're like laughing, you know, with like hats on our head and like those Chinese finger traps. Like, <laughs> and like pixie sticks. Ah, classic Chuck E. Cheese, like pretending we're kids. Um, and then we get in the car. And, we're, and, we're, and everyone's tired. It's a long... I mean, you spend two hours in Chuck E. Cheese, you're going to be tired. Especially ironically. <laughs> um, so we get in the car, and I'm, dri- I'm driving. I-, I was driving us, and everyone else is getting tired. They're taking a nap. Britney Spears, dull roar in the background. <laughs> um, and I just started thinking about what we just did. <laughs> 
and like I'm like page by page going back through this experience and realizing how freaking it's just really weird. Like Chuck E. Cheese is a weird place. I, I, so I started thinking about the very, we, we walk in and there's like a flickering purple black light and like all, like all these things are coming back to my head and I'm having this revelation and there's like a guy there with like a glass eye and he's like stamping your hand and there's, 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 a, there's a velvet rope <laughs> like they have to let you in and they stamp your hand and I'm like what this is this is weird and and then you get in and especially for us it's weird I mean for obvious reasons and when we get in there, I started thinking about some of the things we did. And we, when we went and started playing with some of these machines, I remember like glances out of my eye and seeing kids playing at these machines. And like, I felt like I was in like a casino with like these old people. And they're just like, instead of a cigarette, they have pixie sticks. And they're just like, shlink, shlink, tink, shlink. And like these tickets falling out on the ground. I'm like, this is depressing. Meanwhile, the glass guy is eating pizza, staring at everybody, like opening the velvet rope. And I'm like... And like, I'm like, I'm starting to get scared while I'm driving. Like, what did we do? And, and, and the other thing that I noticed, like, as I'm, like, recalling these memories is, you know, remember the, these guys? <laughs> and then the, dun, 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 those guys? Nobody ever thinks about this, but another Chuck E. Cheese walks out while the other one's playing the keyboard. That's like Santa Claus walking up to a Santa Claus with a kid on his lap. It's like, my turn. It's like, he's seeing two Santa Clauses. <laughs> They're destroying these kids' dreams. <laughs> like, meanwhile, one's over here. Like, how confusing is that for kids? Maybe no, the kids took it seriously. If they didn't, praise God. Because, man, it's a freaky experience. And then I also remember, as we were playing on machines ourselves, again, ironically, um, we, we, we tended to gravitate towards the ones that we mastered. For obvious, you know, um, and we and we actually mastered this one hardcore, where like I like kind of like set up shop, and, and what it was, it was like this like magnet thing. I don't know if anyone knows what this is, but you have to move it down a metal spirally thing. I'm seeing a couple nods. I don't know why I'm shifting my hips. <laughs> I, <laughs> I may have done that. Like it's what happens when you get in the groove. Like your whole body, like like and like you just get entranced. Meanwhile, tickets are flying out of here and like, dude, Jeff, get me a slice of pizza. <laughs> and like, meanwhile, like these like tickets are flying out. And like kids like start looking over as like they have like their two tickets and their pixie stick and like chunking away and they're like, they're not getting lucky. And <laughs> meanwhile, we're sitting here having a blast ignoring these poor kids who had their dreams destroyed by seeing two Chuck E. Cheeses. And now here's these old farts like plugging away, stealing all of the tickets out of the machines. Again, we were part of ruining the dream of the Chuck E. Cheese experience. Not that it ever was a dream. I don't know. So then we start wrapping up. Our eyes, I guess I was wrapping up my thoughts. And uh, I don't have a backpack full of meat or hot dogs. But there's a hot dog coming. Um, I'm driving along. And it was partly the torrential downpour. I will, I will give part of it to that. And part of just like me staring off into space trying to figure like what just happened. That I realized that I missed an exit. And I see a sign that says, welcome to Milwaukee. <laughs> it's not Madison. <laughs> Super depressing. So we get there and I'm like really frustrated because I don't exactly remember where I had to be. But I had to be somewhere. And we get out and I'm just pacing. I just pull over. I get off in Milwaukee. We're probably like, this is like the most ghetto part of Milwaukee. And, and I get out and I'm like, I want you to slap me in the face as hard as you can. The strongest one. So one of my friends gets up 
flexes his arm and just wails on my face. And then as I stumble back up, I'm like, I want you to buy me a hot dog. I need to regain my dignity. I've destroyed kids' dreams. I've been slapped in the face. My face is rosy red. I do have the Chinese finger trap. But I have to call this a disappointing trip. (laughs) So I got my hot dog. I got in my car. And I never went back to Chuck E. Cheese again. End of story. Thank you, Dave. Is Ben Klepzig here? Awesome. Get up for Ben. In uh, 1978, my oldest brother, Kendall, went uh, uh, to college at uh, U of I. And he took a hitchhiking road trip from Champaign-Urbana to Boston to see a girlfriend. It became something of family legend that was spoken of with equal parts disdain and awe, but always with the little caveat of, but of course you couldn't do that today. It's just not safe which I took as a personal challenge. So when I came of age and was at college, I made my own adventure. It was 1989. My path was from Madison to Rochester, New York. And, yeah, there, there was a, a woman theme involved, but not in the way that you think. I was 22 or 23 years old and had probably consciously, committedly, intentionally asked a woman out on a date once or twice in my life. I was terrified of rejection. And it ties in at the end of the story, but I I made some progress on that issue on this road trip. So I took a bus from downtown Madison out to the uh, park and ride, Dutch Mill Park and Ride, and then walked up to the on-ramp for the Beltline and waited for about four hours for my first ride. The first ride, and I, I can't blame them, I'm six foot four, uh, long hair, wearing the kind of faux army jacket that you wear when you're not cool enough to shop at the Army-Navy surplus store. (laughs) But still, I'm the guy they tell you not to pick up, and I get that. So four hours, the guy who picks me up used to be a truck driver for Frito-Lay, still works in their distribution center, but this is part of a theme. Uh, The rides that I got were either truck drivers or they were people who had hitchhiked once before. The two coolest rides came early in the trip. One was a guy on a Harley who had long shoulder-length hair, leather chaps, no helmet, and a a bumper sticker on his fairing that said, Helmet Laws Suck. And we were going about 80 miles an hour in a light rain, bobbing and weaving in between traffic. And I, I swear to God, I've never felt safer. The guy was clearly a master. So that was good. He left me under an uh, overpass when the rain got a little hard. My next ride, interestingly, Illinois State Patrol. Uh, I didn't know, uh, some of you may, it's illegal to hitchhike on the interstate. It's okay if you're on the ramp, but if you're on the interstate, it's not okay. Now, the guy was very cool. He gave me a ride 
to the next oasis. He said, if I have to respond to emergency, I'll drop you, but I'll try and get you as far as I can. We're going along. There's a car creeping up on the left-hand side. If you ever wonder if it's okay to pass a state patrol officer, <laughs> I, I can hear him. He's, it's a monologue. Oh, lady, don't do it. Oh, lady, if, I, if you pass me, I'm going to have to pull you over. Don't do it. She passed, pulled over. He gave me some great advice, though. He said, hitchhiking thumb on the road is not the way to go. Go to the Oasis. Stand where the truckers can talk to you. They'll get to know that you're not crazy, and they'll give you a ride. Next ride, north of Chicago all the way to Detroit. Now, if you know your geography, that's not a straight line to Rochester, New York. But the trucker said, you'll get better rides in Canada, which was (laughs) awesomely true, really, really true. But I had to get there first. So he drops me two miles away from the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit. I'm walking 6 a.m., through what feels to me like a rough part of Detroit. And as I'm getting closer and closer to the Ambassador Bridge, I'm seeing signs, no pedestrian access on the Ambassador Bridge. You know, get closer. Do not pick up hitchhikers if you're crossing the Ambassador Bridge. This was not a well-planned trip. About two blocks away, I put my thumb out. A guy finally picks me up. We get up to the customs area. The guy says... What's your purpose in Canada? He says, I'm going to visit my grandma. Great. What about him? He's a hitchhiker. I picked him up two blocks ago. I'm like, dude, not the right answer. We get separated into separate interview rooms. I have to lay down 20 bucks and an expired credit card that they don't know is bad. And to prove that I'm not going to become indigent, all the while I'm worried about a little bit of weed that's in my bag in his car. But they do let us go. The next ride... I'm going backwards. I keep walking because I'm certain the person pulling over is not pulling over for me. Young woman, 20-something, baby in the car. She's honks at me. Another one of those regular hitchhikers. She's an exotic dancer. She has hitchhiked all over Canada and felt the brotherhood of the road, gave me a ride. I climbed in back, sleep for three hours. That was awesome. The next ride is a French-Canadian guy. Could have been uh, a tour guide. He was describing the countryside. He was describing the cities that we were driving by. I'm trying to milk him for the longest ride I can. I said, you know, this beautiful countryside, I'm from Wisconsin. It reminds me of the most beautiful parts of Wisconsin. Oh, you are from Wisconsin? I am a businessman. I have traveled many times to Wisconsin. I have traveled to Appleton, Wisconsin on business many times. I met a beautiful woman in Appleton, Wisconsin. (laughs) I had a beautiful relationship with a beautiful woman from Appleton, Wisconsin. The the next ride, the one ride that I regretted taking, this guy was an ex-truck driver. He kept rubbing his chest, angry at the government for taking away his CDL. I'm going to get it back. They say I got a bad ticker, but it ain't true. I'm going to get it back. Hey, uh, if you want to, we get to Buffalo, we go downtown, look at some girls. You want to do that? Actually, no. Exit right here. This is my stop. We got off. I walked the rest uh, of the way to the Buffalo bus station, slept there, and took the bus the rest of the way. But whole trip took me 36 hours. And getting back to the women part of the story, I, I had a lot of time sitting on the side of the road thinking. And I started thinking about the cars going by. 
like they were women in my life. And if I were putting my thumb out saying, hey, take a chance, if they didn't, maybe it's not really about me. Maybe it's about their, their next exit is the one up. Maybe the car is full. But it's not about me. They got their own reasons. And if they go by, it's not a rejection of me. It's just not the right thing. And hey, there's another car. Thank you, Ben. I thought for sure, I thought for sure that when you were in that cop car, he was suddenly going to hit a little girl. <laughs> Is Stephanie Wright still here? All right, give it up for Stephanie Wright. When I was living in a country where I didn't speak the native language, and I was with a friend that I had known for 24 hours, in a car with a family that I had known for one hour, I looked out the windshield in front of us and said, let's go. In 2010, I um, moved from my comfortable home here in Madison with all my friends and my family and a language that I understood, and I moved to South Korea. Um, in South Korea, I taught English, and after about a year being there, it was getting to a point where I was really questioning why I had left home to begin with. I had a job where I worked... 10 hours a day teaching English to elementary school kids, middle school kids, kindergartners. Um, I noticed that my boss would take money. He would, like, try to sneak money for my paycheck, so I would have to, like, go down to his office and be really stern and be like, no, put that money back, and then he would always put it back and apologize. But I was getting a little, bit, a little burned out having to deal with that all the time. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to Seoul, but it is a city with 12 million people. And Korea is a country that is basically full of mountains. So what that means is when you build a city for 12 million people, it is in the valley between all these mountains. And so everything is very condensed. And all of the places where people live are these high rises that are everywhere. And you can't, when you walk outside, you can't even see the sky. I just felt suffocated. And I was really questioning, why did I leave my comfortable home to do this? So I was feeling kind of bummed out about all this one day. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go climb one of those mountains. So in Korea, there's like the three tallest mountains, and the third tallest one um, is called Saraksan. And it's like an hour away by bus. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go. I asked my friends to come with me. Nobody could come. I was like, fine. I'm just going to go on my own. So I get a bus ticket. I get to... Um, Saraksan. I get to my hostel room, and I notice that in my room there is another bed. I thought it had been a single room, but there was another bed there, and there was a girl. And she looked like me. I thought, oh, maybe she speaks English. This would be awesome. And I said, um, hi, my name is Stephanie. What's your name? And she said, why? 
And I said, because I'd like to know your name. And she said, um, no, that's my name. My name is Y. And I said, like the letter Y? Like your name is a letter? And she says, no. My name is Y. It's short for Waiana, which is a Hawaiian name. I'm from Hawaii. And I was like, oh, you're from America. I'm from, hey, do you want to go climb this mountain together? And she said, yes. <laughs> so the next day, me and Y go to Saraxan. I climb the mountain. She doesn't climb the mountain, but she's really nice company to have. I feel like we kind of connect and bond, and she's someone I can trust. The next day, we're sitting at the beach. So there's a beach outside of this mountain in a town called Sokcho. And we're waiting because we're going to take the bus and go back home because she's from Seoul. She's been living in Seoul, and that's where I was living. So we're sitting on this beach looking out towards the ocean. And this Korean family comes and sits kind of close to us. And they have a daughter who is probably around 9 or 10. And they have a son who is probably around 6. And the daughter comes and approaches us. And the next thing I know, we are building sandcastles and hanging out with this sweet girl on the beach. And her brother is kicking sand on us. And that is annoying. But that is okay. Um, the next thing I know, her parents come over. They see that we're getting along with her, with their kids, and they want to take a picture with us, which is fine. This is actually a pretty like common thing. If you're like a Westerner in Korea, a lot of times people like to get their picture taken with you. I don't really know why, but it's a pretty common thing. So it's like, okay, we'll do the picture. So we do the picture with the family. Now, at this point, I speak basically no Korean, and the parents of these kids basically speak no English. Their daughter, who's 10, knows a little bit of English, and so she communicates with Y, who knows a little bit of Korean, and basically tells her that the family would like to take us to lunch and is wondering if we're hungry. Now, I am a Midwestern girl. I was raised Lutheran, which means anytime anyone offers me anything or tries to do something nice for me, my first instinct is to reject that and just say, no, please don't go to that trouble. Please, no, no, please, no, no. Don't do that for me. I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't want you to go to that effort. So I say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's not do lunch. Like, let's just let this nice family go on their way, and we'll get on our bus and go home. So the family leaves. But since we were talking about food, now I'm hungry. And I say, why? Let's go get something to eat. She says, Okay. So we get up, we start walking away from the beach. And just like in one of those movies where there's like a child abduction or like the gangster movies where like a van comes out of nowhere and like stops, this van comes out of nowhere, stops in front of us, the door slides open and it's the family. <laughs> and the dad and the mom are in the front seats and they are saying, come, come, come. And the children are saying, lunch, lunch, lunch. <laughs> and I look at Y, and she looks at me, and I said, do you want to get lunch? Sure, let's get lunch. So we get in their van. 
So I drive us a few blocks down the road. We stop at this, um, again, we're by the ocean, so there's a lot of seafood. So we stop at a seafood restaurant. They order everything we point to and ask. They have this awesome, crazy dish, which is a squid, but the squid is, like, stuffed with eggs, so there's, like, an omelet inside of the squid. (laughs) And then they slice it up. Delicious. Um, So I'm sitting and gorging myself on this meal, and so is why, and that's when I notice that the family isn't eating. And I look at why, who is my only partner in sanity and crime out here. And I say, why? The family isn't eating. And she says, I know. And I do some kind of pantomiming motions with the mom. And I figured out that they had already ate. They had left the beach, gone, had lunch somewhere, were on the way back, saw us, stopped, opened the door, got us in to take us out to get this lunch for us and once I've realized this I am so embarrassed I am like wow thank you so much thank you so much for this you know lunch they can't understand most of what I'm saying but I'm pretty sure they understand that I appreciate it and then we get back in the van and we're on our way back to the bus station but on the way back to the bus station, because we've, we've showed them our tickets so they understand that we need to take the bus home, the dad starts making these noises that I'm trying to decipher, and they kind of sound like, ba ah, ba ah, and he's making some motions. And my friend Y, who knows a little bit of Korean and is listening to what he's saying, says, I think he's, I think he's a goat. <laughs> and I was like, or a sheep, because that sounds like a sheep to me. And she's like, I think he wants to take us to see a goat or a a zoo or something. And I'm like, well, that's really nice of him to offer. But, you know, let's just, you know, get on our bus and get home. So we get to the bus station. And the dad looks at, there's a a digital clock on uh, on the front of the car. And it has the time. And I've got my bus ticket. And the time between what's on that clock and on my bus ticket, there is a two-hour difference. And the dad sees that, turns, and looks at me. And with only his facial expression says, Come on, you've got two hours. What the hell are you going to (laughs) do? Why don't you come see some goats? And I look at Y, and she looks at me, and she says, I want to see the goats. (laughs) And I say, let's go. So they close the van door again, and we're off. We're off on the highway, leaving the mountain, going to I don't know where. And after about a half an hour in the car, I start to wonder if this is a good idea. Because wherever these goats are, in whatever farm or zoo, you know, how are we going to get home? Because I'm not going to know how to get home if we're out in the middle of rural nowhere. And are we actually going to see goats? Or is this now the paranoid thoughts are starting to creep in? You know, like two Americans go missing from Sokcho. 
you know, lasting in a van, never to be seen again. And then we arrive at a small city, and I have my first clue as to where we are, because everywhere there are these gigantic banners that say, in English, Pyeongchang. Now, Pyeongchang, at that time, was a candidate city for the Winter Olympics of 2018, and now they are, in fact, the city for the Winter Olympics of 2018. And so... When I saw those banners, I was like, why? We're in Pyeongchang, and the Winter Olympics are maybe going to be here. That's really exciting. And the family takes us up these winding roads, so we get above the city, up, 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 into these giant hills, into the mountains. And when we get out, there is a goat farm. (laughs) There is a goat farm, and there are... You know, ten at least ten different pens of goats, and there is feed for the goats, and the parents buy the feed for us so we can feed the goats. And I am in a giant petting zoo. And the daughter is loving it. She is feeding the goats. She is working her English with us. She is enjoying it. And the brother is not happy. He is crying. Why are we here? We were supposed to be doing some other fun thing. And who are these American women that we picked up? And we're not doing what we were supposed to be doing. And uh, we get to the top of the mountain. And I turn around. And when I look out, I see a sunset. And I see the shadows from the mountains and the trees overlaying the city. And there are no high rises. And I can see the sky. And I feel at peace for the first time in six months of being there and I am in awe of this family and their generosity to just take these strangers and show them a part of their country and their culture that I never would have seen, I never would have thought to have experienced if I had not gotten in that van and if I had not left Madison and I thought, well I guess Korea is where I'm supposed to be thank you Thank you very much. Please put your hands together for Adam Groff. Still smells like meat up here. Um, Is the dude from Southern California still here? Maybe? No? He mentioned driving through Iowa in a snowstorm. And I'm glad he mentioned that because I'm going to expound on that idea a little bit in my story. So, I'm from Madison originally, but I go to school at Luther College, which is a small liberal arts college in Decorah, which is a pretty small town in the corner of Iowa that touches Wisconsin. It's about a three-hour drive, so that's the little road trip that I make whenever I'm going between college and home, and I have braces, and that's, you know, not super fun when you're in your 20s, but... I uh, get to take extra road trips between Iowa and Madison to get my braces adjusted every few weeks, so that's great. Um, And I'm this this particular drive from Decorah to Madison sucks, and for me especially because I'm already a nervous driver. I learned to drive from my dad. I think this is where it comes from, and he's not a nervous driver, but for him. 
he is an editor, and he is all punctuation and syntax and the analytical component of his brain. That's where he feels chill, and that's where he feels at home. And I'm very much not that way. I'm a musician, so I'm all melodies and colors, and the that kind of creative part of my brain is where I feel chill and where I feel, feel comfortable. And whenever I'm trying to like be analytical and logical, I just get weird and things... Uh, things get weird when that happens. And so my dad is the one who taught me to drive. And when he taught me to drive, I I feel like a lot of people, when they learn to drive, their parents are very encouraging and supportive. And they say, oh, relax, just follow the rules, go with the flow of traffic. It's going to be okay. My dad kind of laid it out for me like a flow chart a little bit. This happens, then that happens. And then in this circumstance, you do this. And for my mind, that was very stressful. And whenever I drive, you know, most of the time I'm in this creative color world, but when I drive, I'm like in this logical place, which for me is not a happy place to be. So um, I'm already a nervous driver, and there are things that happen on the drive to Decora that I have to do a lot that make me more nervous. And uh, the, the drive to Decora goes through small towns and then for a while it goes through nowhere it goes through the country and there are bluffs and it's very pretty but there's somewhere beyond prairie du chien there's this abstraction that we call the point of no return and that's because if there's going to be weather on the drive or if for some reason you're not going to make it if you get past that point there's nothing until you get practically to Decorah. You've got to drive for about an hour, and there's no place to stop. There's no gas stations. You have to do some kind of weird navigational things or knock on someone's farmhouse if you get stuck. So uh, this this point of no return, you've got to make sure you get gas there um, because you're not, if you're running out, you don't want to get stuck uh, in that stretch between Prairie du Chien and Decorah. So... That's a scary part of the drive. There are three main hazards on this drive. This is a two-lane highway, um, and I really don't like two-lane highways in particular because, again, I'm a little bit of a nervous driver. And in most driving situations, if you kind of screw up a little bit and you're not paying attention, you might ruin your car, but you'll probably be okay. If you screw up passing on a two-lane highway, you die. Because you're going straight at where the oncoming traffic should be. And on this particular stretch of highway, the passing zones are really weird. And there's hills everywhere that you can't see over. And if you get stuck behind someone going slow or some kind of vehicle or something, you either have to make the decision to stick it out and just go slow until they happen to turn off the highway. Or you can wait until there's some stretch of highway where you can see just enough to get around them. And uh, me being a nervous driver, I tend to just go with the slow thing for a while. Because the passing zones are, like, really brief. Like, the signs will be going by, and you'll see, like, all right, passing zone, no passing zone, right away. And you're like, was that, was that my shot right there? And you were supposed to have taken it. And then there'll be, like, a a right lane that the slow traffic's supposed to turn into. And then it'll vanish immediately. And you're, like, trying to play with all these cars. And then there's always some guy who is, like, going, like, 120 down the way. And he doesn't even 
care if it's a passing zone, and he'll just go around you like the bullet bill from Mario Kart. And it's like, it's like I don't know, he's going to feed his pigs or whatever people in Iowa need to go do fast. <laughs> Caucus, I don't know. Um, and so there's all this kind of traffic going on, and I'm just kind of on cruise control wanting to do my own thing, hoping I don't get stuck behind a school bus, because when you're behind a school bus, like in some states you can pass a school bus, and in some states you can't, and you have to get your girlfriend to look up online if it's okay to do, and there's extra moral implications, because there's children on there. Um, so there's all that going on, and there's, there's these three main hazards. One is tractors. Anyone who's driven in the country knows that when there's tractors on the two-lane highway, you have to figure out how to go around them. On most of this highway that I have to drive down to to get to Decorah, there's no shoulder. Tractors are okay, though, because they can kind of, they've got the big tires, they're made to go on dirt, so they can go half on the road, half off, and you can just kind of go around them, not really spend much time in the oncoming lane. I'm fine with tractors. Then there's semi-trucks. And semi-trucks, if you get behind a semi-truck, they are insanely hard to pass on two-lane highways. And, you know, that's because you can't see around them, and then you have to spend extra time there because they're so long, and sometimes you get the ones that are ridiculous and have all kinds of logs and things and weird formations. And I just, I don't bother to pass those. But then, you know, there's that guy who's going to feed his pigs, and he's got no problem in a no-passing zone just going past. Go for it, guy. But not me. And um, so semi-trucks are bad enough as it is there. But then when they're coming at you, if there's any kind of weather, if there's snow on the truck or if there's water, it will hit your windshield. And sometimes it's mud. I've gotten hit with mud a few times. And I'm just blindly going down the highway. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, that's that's fine. Trucks can just do that to you. That's not against the law or anything. Um, so, so semi-trucks can be really obnoxious on these particular narrow highways, especially if the one that you want is unplowed and you have to go on an especially narrow one. Those are bad. And then the third hazard is the Amish. I love the Amish, but um, and they, you know, they they're they're trying to get along. There's some Amish guy in his little buggy going down the highway on the side, and there's no shoulder, so he can't kind of go on the side of the highway. He has to go on the real highway, and his horse cannot go as fast as your car. So, you know, the, the Amish are you, you can pass the Amish though because they're like tractors. You can if you're going the speed limit, you don't even have to speed up. You can just kind of. Go around them really quick, not really even, you know, if you're driving like a little small car, you almost don't even have to go over the center line. You can just kind of weasel your way through. It's good to slow down a little bit so you don't freak out their horse. But um, when you get a semi-truck behind an Amish person, that's a problem. Because the semi-truck is huge, and you can't, like... They, they can't pass as easily, uh, the Amish people, because they, like, have to maneuver around the, the lane. So Amish and semi-trucks, kind of the natural enemies of this highway. So there was this one time when my dad and I were going to Decorah, and there was going to be a snowstorm. And we figured out how to navigate the snowstorm. We looked at the radar, and we were very proud of ourselves because there was a certain, like, hole in this storm blob on the radar that we figured we could drive through the whole way. Not sure exactly what we were thinking. But we thought it was a good idea. And uh, we're going down the highway, 
and uh, things were going well so far. I turn over the driving to my dad. I'm kind of falling asleep, um, and I wake up, and my dad is looking over to the side of the road like this. And I'm like, Dad, you taught me to drive. You're supposed to have your eyes on the road. Um, and uh, I look over, and there is something big in the ditch. And I'm like, uh-oh, this is going to be bad. Like, my dad's staring. I see a semi-truck. I see a police car. I was like, man, this is, uh, this is rough. I've got to look to see what happened. But um, So, like, I look there. I look down the ditch. And what I saw, just as the sun kind of peeks out from behind a cloud, I saw like six Amish dudes on their horses hauling this semi-truck up out of the ditch. These guys got on their horses and came to save this truck. And so I thought about that story a lot, and I think um, one of the best parts about it to me is that there were some police officers who like found this truck in a ditch, and they're like, hey, that truck's in a ditch. I don't think we can get a tow truck down there. Hey, let's call the Amish. <laughs> Wait. They don't have phones. And then some guy like pulls out a flare gun and shoots it up in the air, and it explodes in a big A for Amish, like in the Scarlet Letter. I didn't read that book very carefully, but I think something like that happens. And then these guys are like raising their barn, and they see it up in the sky, and they're like, all right, let's go. So... That story always reminds me that even the sworn enemies of the highway can help each other out in times of need. And that is the story of the Amish Rescue Squad. Thank you. Next, Renee Lajak? Lajak? There we go. Renee. Give it up for Renee. It was the summer of 77, and I was 17. I just graduated from high school, and I was living at home with my parents, ex-Marine sergeants, both of them, in conservative Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I was working in a jelly factory, hot, sticky, dark jelly factory. I had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of the summer, much less the rest of my life. And then out of the blue, my sister offers me a road trip to Washington, D.C. to see our older brother. Now, my sister is, to me, to my eyes, six years older. She's cosmopolitan and mature and full of, I don't know, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and a lot of fun. So I said, okay, let's do it. My brother in D.C., wow, he's a, um, a bicycle messenger, and he's got a telescope and long hair and an and a, a earring and a live-in girlfriend. He's the epitome of adulthood to myself. <laughs> so, the, so our plan is, oh, my, my sister has uh, a truck, a pickup truck with a capper on the back, but she doesn't have any money. So this graduation present, quotes, is her truck, my gas money. But I thought, eh, better than a dark, sticky jelly factory, I'll take it. Our plan is that she's going to spend the night at my parents' house. We're going to get up at 3.30 in the morning, hit the road at 4. Responsible kid that I am, I get up at 3.30. No Michelle, that's my sister. I get ready, 4 o'clock, no Michelle. 
Finally, a little bit after four, here comes Miss Michelle sashaying in with a grin on her face after a fine night out. Uh, my mother walks in at the same time, says, oh, good, I just wanted to make sure that you were both up and ready to go. So, ready or not, Michelle slid behind the front wheel, behind the steering wheel, not behind the front wheel, and we're off, straight through D.C. I don't remember much, a lot of singing for the AM radio, um, and uh, probably um, just a lot of fun. We get to D.C. and see my brother. First thing he does is hands us both a joint, and... um, Things get hazy after that for the next couple of weeks. You have to remember this is the 70s, so it's kind of magical mystery tour, but in the back of uh, Cheech and Chong's up-and-smoke van. Um, first thing we do is jump back in the truck, and uh, some of my brother's friends and Michelle and I jump in. We go to Virginia, to the ocean. I'd never been to the ocean. And what I remember was wonderful, swimming in the ocean, camping on the beach, I remember wild horses leaping through the marshes. It was my childhood book, Misty of Chincote, come to life. I remember going back to D.C. and climbing up to the roof of my brother's brownstone and looking down over the city and the majestic white monuments had shrunk to little tiny miniatures on this sparkling bicycle wheel that was the Washington, D.C. city plan. During the days, we took our bikes. We had the bikes in the back of the pickup truck. And my brother, being a bicycle messenger, he knew all the bike paths and he knew all the the secret places to uh, stash your bike. And, and, oh, we just had a wonderful time biking through the city. We were flying. And we threw coins into the Mercury, the statue of Mercury at the National Gallery of Art because that's the patron saint of bicycle messengers. Um, And uh, danced in the fountains. It was all dreamy and lovely, exotic and exciting, and especially to a 17-year-old from a conservative town. And I felt like I was being allowed into a secret society of adulthood that had been kept from me. I deserved secret society. One day, someone passed us a, a poster for a party in Maryland. So Michelle and I jumped in the car and went to Maryland. The party was in this great old house, and it was a party like I had never been to. There were barrels and barrels of beer in the basement, bottles and bottles of booze on the first floor, a live band in the backyard, and sweet-smelling smoke everywhere. There, I never even met the host, but there were like wandering groups of smiling people. I found myself in the porch, sitting, enjoying myself, and someone wandered up, floated up, let's say, with a silver platter, round silver platter, totally fanned out with perfectly rolled joints. (laughs) I was awed by the excess and the extravagance. There was a dining room with a round wooden table, no chairs, and the table was heaped with food. Now, you've got to remember, we were doing this trip on a shoestring, on my shoestring. So we were hungry. My brother was a vegetarian. We had munchies. We had meat cravings. We approached this table with some others, nibbled, and started moving clockwise. Nibbling, eating, eating, gorging, until we were using the serving spoons. 
We had no shame. My sister said she knew we'd, we'd reached the dark side when she woke up the next morning with cake under her fingernails <laughs> from scratching those cake pans. The ride back to Wisconsin, I don't remember much, a lot of singing, but I do remember all of a sudden hearing over the radio, the announcer break in, Elvis Presley has just died. And at that moment, we looked up and we saw a sign hanging over the highway. And it had two arrows. The one to the right went to Chicago, and the one to the left, Memphis. And I want to tell you that I went left, and I went to Memphis, and I was there first in line, clutching my candle and singing, Love me tender, love me do. But no, that's when my conservative side kicked in. And I went right. I turned right, and I went right back to Oshkosh, and I got myself a part-time job to figure out what I was doing with the rest of my life. And I still didn't know what, but I knew it was going to have a lot more road trips. Thank you. And that's going to do it for us today at Madison Story Slam. Hope you enjoyed those great stories about road trips and just, you know, life on the road. Uh, hey, our next episode, we have Ken Fitzsimmons from The Kissers, an Irish folk band from here in Madison. They're a bunch of rock musicians who learned Irish folk tunes and started writing their own stuff. They've been around for about 18 years, and uh, they're a great band. So he's on and talking about being in The Kissers and plays a few tunes for us. Hey, once again, uh, next Saturday, March 19th, is our next Story Slam. The theme is Rebel or Rebel. Come on out to the Wilmar Center and have a good time. Anyway, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.